I will be forever the myth. You're the king of kings, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a pecking order. The little peckers never mess with the big peckers. So I'm a rooster, and he's a chicken. This episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast is brought to you by our Patreon sponsors. If you'd like to become a Patreon sponsor of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, please visit our website at bodybuildinglegendshow.com. In the upper right-hand corner, you will see a link to becoming a Patreon sponsor. All right, welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, where we talk to the legends of bodybuilding, and we also talk about the history of bodybuilding. I'm your host, John Hansen. And on today's show, we're doing a little bit more magazine article reading. I was not able to secure a guest for this week, as been the which has been kind of the standard for the last month or so, unfortunately. But I do have a ton of old bodybuilding magazines, so I thought I would share these with you guys. And on this episode of the podcast, I'm going to read articles that come right from Muscle Builder magazine. I was, of course, I'm writing this book on bodybuilding legends, so I was doing some research into some of my old magazines, and I was going back to the 1976 issues of Muscle Builder, which is the year I'm writing about right now in my bodybuilding history book. And there's just so much great material, so many good articles. And then after 1976, when they got to around 1980 or so, the magazine kind of expanded, it got bigger. And that was right before it became Muscle and Fitness magazine. But there's just so much great contest coverage and articles on training and articles on the mind and the right attitude, and then upcoming bodybuilders. So I've got a lot of stuff I want to read with you guys today and share with you from these old magazines. I think i got like four or five of them. So we're going to do that in a second. All right. And other news, unfortunately, my Muscle Maturity podcast, I guess you would call it a podcast. It's a YouTube channel. It is on uh, Old School Labs channel on YouTube. And I've been doing this with Samir Banut and Nick Trigilli since I think we started it last July. I think we're like you know, 41 episodes in. We do it every week, usually on uh, Tuesdays. It is, I think, put on hold right now because Nick Trigilli's channel, which is called Bodybuilding and BS, he's had that going for a while. It was a very successful channel. He had over 100,000 subscribers to his YouTube channel. It was pulled from YouTube. And he's not sure why. He was not given any warnings or anything, but he suspects that somebody from higher up complained or something like that happened. And for whatever reason, it was pulled. And now all the Muscle Maturity podcasts have also disappeared. So those are no longer available on YouTube either. And I guess it's because uh, Nick was also on that. So we did not record a show last week as we do every week. And I don't know what's going to happen with it. It seems like it's up in the air right now. So I've had a few people email me asking what happened, and I don't know really what's going on. I don't think they know. They're trying to figure it out as well. So hopefully we will get that show back up. I was kind of enjoying it. It was fun to banter with Samir. We would always get in little arguments, and because if you don't agree with Samir, he would argue with you. So it was. we had some good chemistry on the show, I thought, with the three of us, you know. But we'll see what happens. Hopefully they'll bring that back. I want to wish my mom a happy birthday today. April 30th is her birthday. So happy birthday to my wonderful mom. I'm so happy that she is my mom. She is the best. Very wonderful, wonderful lady. And really the heart of our whole family. She gives out every she gives out all the love to everybody. She is an amazing person. And 
the older I get, the more I'm able to see really how amazing she is. So I put together a little video for her today. I had a couple of her favorite songs and put some old pictures on top of it and sent it to her. So she really liked that. So I will, uh, I'm going out to Chicago in two weeks from Mother's Day. So I'll get to see her and the rest of my family. So happy birthday, mom. John Citroni also had a birthday. John is 80 years old and he looks amazing. Posted a picture of himself in a tank top, of course, on his Facebook page, and he just looks fantastic. So he got a ton of comments. I made a comment as well. I said he's my idol, and he said, I'm always following in your footsteps. He said that to me. <laughs> that was unbelievable. John Citroni gave me a compliment. So you can't imagine how great that makes me feel. when I These guys that I've been reading about since I was 14 years old say something nice like that to me, even if they know who I am is amazing. So happy birthday, John Tony Looks like they had a party. Family and friends had a party, made a little speech. So I'm glad that John is doing well. He looks fantastic. What a great inspiration for all of us and such a great guy. I did not get any emails from you guys. Last week, we interviewed, of course, David Kinder, 86 years old. David had some interesting stories about Muscle Beach and seeing Steve Reeves pose in a contest. So hope you guys enjoyed that. I didn't get any uh, emails about it, but hopefully you enjoyed that. All right. So I think that's all I got. Nothing really else going on except for that muscle maturity thing. So let's start with these articles because I got so many of them. I don't want to waste any more time. This first one is one by, of course, Arnold. And it's not about Arnold. It's not an interview with Arnold. It's an article written by Arnold. And it comes from the July 1978 issue of Muscle Builder magazine. And all these articles will be coming from Muscle Builder. And this one's called How I Use My Head to Build Muscle. It says, it's ironic that hundreds of bodybuilders who attend my clinics and seminars around the country seem to be quite ignorant of the basic bodybuilding facts. It's as if there has been too much information available to them. They are confused. They read about this star who trains four times a week with incredible poundages, and they figure since they cannot emulate his training habits that they'll never develop the kind of build that wins top contest. My questioners know all the exercises, what they're supposed to do, what they don't know about is how to put them together for best results. For a change, I will attempt to write a, on bodybuilding generally, and along the way, who knows, we might just blow a few myths. In the first place, you do not have to train twice a day in order to develop a championship physique. But don't get me wrong, I trained three times a day at one period, but that was when I first came to this country from Europe and I discovered I had a whole lot of catching up to do. I found that the people against whom I'd be competing all had great abdominals and calves, both areas that I had neglected in the past. So I took to training what I call the smaller areas late in the evening, things like forearms, calves, and intercostals and abdominals. I did my chins then too. I would get up in the morning around seven o'clock, go for a run along the beach, breakfast, and then head to the gym for my first workout around nine o'clock. At that time, I find I'm not particularly strong, so I used the morning workout to attack my bench presses, pullovers, inclines, flies, and so on for the chest. My arms always came up easily, did not require heavy weights, therefore it did not tax my strength to any great degree to also train them in the morning. In the afternoon, say two hours after lunch, I again visited the gym, this time to take my really heavy workout. That's when I went into my squats, deadlifts, heavy presses behind the neck, and so on. As in the first instance, this workout lasted no more than 90 minutes. The third workout began at 6.30 p.m. and lasted just under an hour. It should be borne in mind that I was most fortunate in that I was contracted to the Weedle organization at the time 
and literally trained all day in preparation for top contests and photo sessions. Between workouts, depending on the weather, I either relaxed at home with a book or I enjoyed the Venice Beach sun. There was a time when I attended class at UCLA, besides earning a living as a bricklayer, Franco also endured this means to a livelihood for some time. Naturally, I had to adjust my training to suit. Now I train just twice a day, hitting each body part three times a week. Today, with most of my time taken up by business, not to mention the fact that I'm no longer in competition, I still get up at seven for that run on the beach, but my workouts last little more than an hour each day. I work the whole body using moderate poundages, but as quickly as possible. And I manage to stay in pretty good shape for an actor. Which brings us to another point. A number of guys tell me their muscles can take the pressure of supersets and trisets. By this time, everyone must know about the two weeder principles, so I won't be oversimplistic by going into a long thing about them. But they experience difficulties with their wind. It does not surprise me. You see, so many people misunderstand the word training. You should train yourself to undertake supersets and fast training. Try doing what I've done for years. Try including running in your training program. Run two or three miles each day. Well, maybe twice a week to begin with. Faster each session and watch your powers of recuperation develop. So many people believe it's detrimental to pant. They think you'll lose muscle if you run. Forget it. Today, there's hardly a champion bodybuilder who does not include running in his training program. But break in slowly, for Christ's sake. Another question that often arises, the matter of cheating. Perhaps Joe made a mistake when he dubbed his looser training style cheating. There's something about the word that induces guilt in the beginner. The champ, of course, knows better. In the old days, before the weeder system, some people who called themselves instructors sold the idea that you cannot build muscle unless you adopt a completely rigid training style. Poppycock. Can you imagine Robbie Robinson or Lou Ferrigno doing curls with a 60 or even 100-pound barbell at this stage of their careers? Well, let me tell you, that's what they'd be using if they trained as the old instructors used to advocate. They need to put more and more stress on the muscle if you hope to make them grow. You must handle progressively heavier weights in your training, and the only way you'll manage that is to allow yourself a little freedom during workouts. Naturally, I'm not saying a curl should be done with the back, thighs, knees, and everything else heaving. Basically, the curl is a bicep exercise, and most of the effect in the movement should be felt in the biceps. But give yourself some breathing space. Don't feel guilty about a little swing to start the heavy barbell moving upwards. But once the weight starts going up, let the biceps alone take over. Same with the lowering of the weight. Try to remain in control all the way. Let the bicep muscle resist the downward pull. And remember, the cheat curl of today is the strict curl of tomorrow. Before you know it, 150 will be a chicken shit weight to strict curl. If you feel inclined to train in 1935 style, that is. Now, how about the weights, poundages? So many people ask me how heavy I train. Well, usually my answer goes something like this. I judge a weight by the number of reps I can get out of it. Four reps maximum indicates the weight is too heavy for bodybuilding. I need to get at least eight reps per exercise. I consider a weight heavy enough if I have to grind out the last two reps. And the minute I can get 10 reps without screaming, well, then I increase the weight. There are times when I'm stronger than usual. At such times, I simply pack on the plates. But then when I feel I'm not feeling all that super, well, I experience no guilt feelings in cutting down. That's what bodybuilding is all about. Push yourself in order to achieve, but don't for a minute act ridiculous. Listen to your body vibes and you won't go wrong. About diet, I am not a nutritionist. I can only say what I know what's best for me 
and what I should stay away from at all costs. Sure, I indulge in a little junk food once in a while, a little liquor too. That's life. But not when I'm in hard training for a contest. The actual gym work is hard enough. Why make things doubly difficult for yourself by eating food that is bound to pack on pounds of ugly fat around your definition? I suppose it's good advice to recommend that you stay away from canned foods that are loaded with poisonous sugar, fruits in particular. With a little effort, you can find fresh fruit for your larder. If you manage it, home cooking beats the restaurant fried variety every day. Candy is strictly not for me and most bodybuilders, the serious ones at any rate. Stay away from all sugars, including honey. It turns out, according to some imminent authorities, that the stuff is as bad as regular sugar. Get your sweets from oranges and other fruit. But don't be a pain in the neck. Cottage cheese and other dairy products are fine, unless you have discovered, as only a few bodybuilders have, that they make you too fat. I eat lots of chicken, but I'm getting worried about red meats. And fish is a godsend, of course. I love eggs, too. I guess that about covers it. If there's any more you wish to know, well, one way of getting dependable information is to read this magazine regularly. If you have trouble getting it in your area, well, then that's not really an excuse for not reading it. Go on and get a subscription. There's an ad with a coupon in every issue. On the other hand, keep your eyes peeled and your ears open for clinics that are becoming the thing these days, thanks to George Schneider, who started the whole thing rolling. So far, besides myself, George has had Franco Colombo, Rick Wayne, Cal Scalac, Frank Zane, and the Menser brothers, and others holding clinics in his area. Why not ask your gym owner to follow Snyder's example? And lastly, there are my courses, of course. All right. Pretty good article by Arnold. It's kind of short, but good to hear from the champ. Of course, I'm sure he didn't write that exactly, but sounds like his thoughts. And this comes from 1978, so only a couple years after he retired. By the way, Arnold's got a newsletter out I believe if you go to Schwarzenegger.com, you could probably subscribe to it. And he's been doing that almost every day. And he has a podcast. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it's a podcast. It's a very short podcast. It's usually about eight or nine minutes. And it's just kind of a motivational message, a little information about exercise or nutrition. It's more for the general public, of course, not for hardcore bodybuilders. Pretty interesting. Arnold's trying to do a positive impact. And so he never stops. Arnold is always, always going 75, going on 76 this year. And he just always tries to make a positive impact in the world. So yeah, check that out. I believe it's at Schwarzenegger.com. All right. Now we'll go back a little bit. This is February, 1977, Muscle Builder and Power. This is the 1976 World Bodybuilding Championships, the Mr. Universe. It was written by Jack Neary, one of the best writers, along with Rick Wayne. It says, Mohammed El Makawe of Egypt, like most other foreign bodybuilders at the 1976 Mr. Universe come World Bodybuilding Championships in Montreal, November past, never came out of his shell until he hit the posing platform, and then it was all over. For the three days leading up to the competition, most foreigners remained surprisingly inconspicuous. The bodybuilders, that is. The official delegates pockmarked the lobby in their official IFBB blazers, with bits of red tape flowing from their pockets. The delegates were ubiquitous. Their heyday would unfold at the annual Congress. We had snatched brief glimpses of some of the Middle Eastern athletes, McAway included. They would sit quietly in the corner of the hotel lobby, cradling a smolding cigarette between index digit and thumb, taking surreptitious drags from the cigarette, perhaps even sharing it with one of their equally timid friends. We rode an elevator with the Turk, Ahmed Anulu, and immediately raised eyebrows to the butt he was holding. His hands were stained iodine brown with nicotine. 
You know why they smoke, don't you? Asked Danny Padilla, short man for the Americans who would have his own hands occupied later with Macaway. No, for cuts. These guys always smoke for a contest. It takes their appetites away. You'll see how ripped the Egyptian is. Danny, as far as I can tell, the short class is yours. Yeah, you'll see how ripped the Egyptian is. But as quickly as the strings of smoke would dissipate, so too would many of the foreign disappear behind their respective doors for who knows what clandestine goings on. Picture the so-soon homesick chap tossing relentlessly on his hotel bed, one eye on the French Popeye cartoons on TV, the other cast emptily out the window at the gray, forlorn-looking building standing tall in the cryogenic air of the late autumn Canada, and his mind turning his posing routine over and over like a runway rototill. Sport is an important event, IFPB President Ben Weeder would tell us, which brings together different races and nations as brothers and friends. But there seemed to be little of the international fraternization he was speaking of. I would stay in my room and go over the posing charts I had drawn, said Makawe later, to help me in my posing preparation. I would make a small drawing of all the poses and then pick the ones I liked. How contrary to the attitudes of the California duo, Padilla and the medium-class threat, Robbie Robinson. Their days prior to the event were spent in thinking of ways to entertain themselves. Aside from certain erotic preferences, Padilla was hip to feasting, sometimes something he had been doing quite a bit of only four weeks before the show, and would learn from later in catching a movie, Robinson, usually an unassuming guy, almost introverted, was gibbering, we got to get down, we got to get down tonight, let's find a disco. In the five days Robinson spent in Montreal, he learned two French phrases, voulez-vous danser and je vous ami, would you like to dance and I love you. He would phone his wife in Los Angeles one evening, repeating his broken French to her, only to have a raving gym owner from Western Canada, whom he had befriended, grab the mouthpiece and bellow, Hey, this guy is tearing up the town. He's got young girls hanging all over him. Your marriage isn't safe, Robinson groaned. But the most cataclysmic happening for Robbie Robinson came in the form of ice cream, layer cake, and strawberries, only a night's sleep away from the prejudging. That in itself is not too profound. Bodybuilders need such carbs for pumping. But cake and Robinson go together like cats and water. Robinson's idea of a good time is, well, forced reps in the gym. Or, oops, he's slipping, a piece of white bread with, oh no, butter. For Robinson to indulge in cake, the cancer of Betty Crocker, he calls it, with ice cream even, is akin to a 56-day orgy of bacchanalia on the moon for most folks. Sinner Robbie. And he paid for it. On the chartered bus headed for the prejudging, Robinson folded his hands over his hard accordion-like midsection and moaned, Man, that cake and ice cream did me no good. I just can't eat that stuff. It makes me sick. I was up all night sick. Padilla nudged Robinson and said, Hey, you know, you could have given it to me. That's what we all like about Danny. He never takes himself too seriously. Save for the spirited chatter of Padilla and Robinson, the bus drove on in nervous silence. Mike Menser, the other American team member, was on another bus. The Maryland pre-med student had spent most of the time out of the mainstream with his girlfriend. I can't believe it, but this is the first time I've ever been excited for a contest, Gus Robinson. He had right in being excited. Robinson had missed only one workout since he won the medium class the year before in South Africa. He had more than enough riding on this one. But judging from certain schools of thought, 
Robinson would make Secretariat go off as a long shot. I'm surprised they haven't pulled me out of the contest yet, quit Padilla, in reference to his misfortune of South Africa, whereas the American short-class representative, he was bumped in favor of having two tall men compete. The 1976 World Bodybuilding Championships, a title now preferred over Mr. Universe and its shady, unathletic connotation, marked a revolution in bodybuilding. For once, a contest has divested itself of showbiz trappings, of seedy hall and Hollywood lighting for the look of a true athletic event. The Montreal production was sports and nothing else. IFBB General Secretary Winston Roberts chose a huge track field house, the Centre Pierre Charbonnet, which was used during the Olympic Games for the wrestling and weightlifting competition. A raised platform was stationed in the middle of the banked synthetic track upon which was a posing platform. Approximately 65 feet behind the platform were giant hanging nets, which made up the backdrop, a rather unorthodox one at that. The contest was without the saffron pools of light, which splashed the athlete in most stage productions. In fact, the arena was very bright for the benefit of ABC's Wide World of Sports crew, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and Vis News of London. Looking at the platform from the bleacher seats, one only had to look some 60 feet to the right to see the warm-up area, or pit, it has come to be dubbed. By circling several office dividers of carillons, a large pumping-up corral was created. Depending upon which attitude one assumed, such an enclosure full of 30 bodybuilders could seem like a fairy nature atmosphere of Caesarean gladiators preparing for battle, or like a herd of cattle milling about before the slaughter. There was no disputing the quality of muscle, but by all pretenses, the organization of the event came off like a canned ham of abominations. There was enough muscle, knee plus ultra, to command the attention of even the most flighty individuals for the run of the 11 and a half hour spectacle, seven hours of prejudging, and a four and a half hour long evening presentation. Had the organizing committee decided not to run the Canadian championships in conjunction with the world finals, it still would have been enough to test the patience of even India's sun-gazing fakers. As it was, the Mr. Canada portion made the whole affair a bit too lengthy. Out of the show's length can be read success, however, success in the considerable drawing power of the IFBB. How the organization has strengthened to allure a record 33 countries to the championships. For a competition of such importance, there was really no excuse for the poor planning that resulted in the competitors and delegates alike having to stand with a crowd of several hundred fans outside the arena in 20-degree weather, waiting for the doors to open. After a wait of over 10 minutes, the mass of athletes was directed to another door, to which the public streamed towards also, creating a hellish traffic jam as the competitors had to pick and squeeze their way through. For 1976, there are three Mr. Universe champions, if you will, in striving for Olympic recognition, an end to which many contend is futile because the Olympic Games is simply not adding any new sports, regardless of political structure nor reputation. In reality, they may be cutting some sports for the 1980 edition in an attempt to shore up the celestial levels of cost, which destroyed the Montreal debacle. The IFBB has decreed that instead of the customary overall winner, there will now be a champion from each class. In the last competition, height classes were used, However, for the 1977 finals in Nîmes, France, and future championships, three weight categories will be applied. Lightweight, up to 165 pounds or 75 kilograms. 
middleweight up to 198 pounds or 90 kilograms, and heavyweight over 198 pounds. Indeed, the adoption of this format drew the game one step closer to becoming a true competitive sport, but the general consensus amongst athletes and fans seems to indicate the rub lies in naming three champions stands an overall title holder. It's anticlimactic, comes the criticism. Having the three weight class champs battle it out to decide the ultimate winner makes bodybuilding more competitive, if anything. The short class. Padilla was right on about the Egyptian Makawe. He was ripped. As the 11 short class competitors lined up for the initial scoring, it was immediately apparent that this would be a battle between Makawe and Padilla. What better examples of the two opposite styles of physique? Makawe was the quintessence of line and defined form. Padilla, a paradigm of mass and shape. But in first comparison between the two, it was discouragingly evident that Padilla was not in top form. He certainly admitted so. Yes, he was serious about the whole venture, but three weeks before Gold's Gym, Padilla would tell me, I don't know what it is this year, but I just can't seem to get the mental discipline I want. I sit down at the restaurant table, I see some carrot cake, and I have to eat it. Well, I learned one thing, and that is I didn't start training early enough this year. I did a lot in seven weeks for the American Bodybuilding Championships, but I really needed more time. Next year, I'm going to go crazy in the gym. It'll be a different story. But for now, next year was next year. Padilla looked in trouble this day in Montreal. He stood besides Makawe in the lineup. While Padilla almost dwarfed the Egyptian, he could not overcome the lack of cuts, nor the Egyptian's abundance. Makawe was cheating in the lineup. They were to stand relaxed. If that was McAway's idea of relax, then he must sweat while he sleeps. He was fidgeting, tensing, flexing. His muscles under his saran wrap skin were jumping about like a, a elastics on an unraveling golf ball. Compared to Makawe, Padilla looked like a corpse. Muttering arose in the press section. Would they not warn Makawe? Dennis Stallard of Wales, a disciplinarian who was coordinating the judging and directing the bodybuilders through their paces, walked past McAway and addressed Padilla. You must stand relaxed. I am relaxed. Stop flexing. Look, this is it. I'm relaxed. Directions were being yelled at the bodybuilders by partisan factions of the small prejudging crowd. The abs, Danny, the abs. Stallard stepped down off the stage and confronted the audience. The audience will not instruct the competitors, he roared. Last time. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was sitting in the first row, only feet from Stallard, jumped to his feet, saluted, and boomed. Jawo! Stallard directed the bodybuilders off stage. They would not return for individual posing, or they would return for individual posing. Makawe was so enthralled in his own presence on stage, so concerned with keeping his body tense in an almost arrogant manner that Padilla had to tap him on the shoulder and tell him to get moving. Makawe posed with the verve of a spooked horse. He was proud, his movements emphatic. He gave a stirring account of himself. Makawe's incredible series of back poses forced hissing noises from the audience. His weaknesses, traps and calves, went virtually unnoticed. The 23-year-old from Cairo, a dead ringer for his hero, Rick Wayne, sees the amusement of dilettantes and crusty top sawyers alike. One could see the judges nodding their heads in approval. Padilla's posing was something less than that. As he explained afterward, no, I wasn't psyched out by the Egyptian. That's a bunch of crap. I just wanted to get off of there. I was pissed at the head judge there, Stallard. He wrecked my posing routine. He was telling each guy what poses to hit for the mandatory part of it. He would say a pose, and the guy would hit it, and so on. 
instead of just getting us to do six poses consecutively on our own. So he says to me, front double biceps, and I hit it. Then he wants a back double biceps. And just as I'm about to hit the pose, he says, no, 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 front lat spread. And that pissed me off because it made me look like I forgot the poses. You know, your own individual posing routine doesn't really mean anything. It's the compulsory stuff that really counts. I don't appreciate having my compulsory poses ruined by someone else's mistake. I wasn't very happy about the pumping up procedure either. We're all waiting around and they said, okay, guys, start pumping up. So we did. And then we had to wait an hour. Why did they tell us to pump up if we were going to wait an hour? Padilla's performance this day was riding on a big if. If Danny wasn't fat or if Danny had more definition, people were saying he would beat the Egyptian. So he would have. Muscle for muscle, Padilla was superior. But Adolf Zignor of Austria commanded much praise for the ham hocks that he wore for arms. This his first IFBB competition. Ziegler was very thick through the upper body, but it was glaringly weak in the legs. He had also abused the passing of a new rule that competitors be allowed to use sudden tan the day before the contest. So liberally coated with the tanning lotion was Zigner, he looked like a giant nicotine stain. His greatest error may have been when he was seen in full view of the crowd and judges swigging scotch from a 26-ounce bottle. Schwarzenegger would say of his fellow Austrian, Man, that was funny. Adolf was so drunk you wouldn't believe it. I had to take the bottle from him. Perennial entrant Renato Bertagna of Italy fared well. Each year out, the short man improves, and while he has placed higher before, he was sharp in Montreal. The judges gave him fourth with 166 points. Barbados's Bernard Seeley claimed fifth spot with 163 points. There was a three-way tie for sixth spot between Joff Alexander of Wales, Nicholas Kemp of Belgium, and Hugo Montenegro of Argentina. Zigner, the Austrian, was very pleased with his third-place finish. I am proud of the 173 points I scored, and I hope to do better next time, the 38-year-old house painter from Graz claimed. Last year, I was strongly considering retiring from competition, but I decided to give this show a go after I won the Austrian Championships. It was a move I surely do not regret. Dan Padilla, USA, came the announcement for second place. A faint mask of disappointment swept the American cherubic face, but being perhaps the most level-headed sport in the game, it was fleeting. Padilla tallied 181 points. And with a remarkably high score of 192 points, announced Oscar State, the 1976 lightweight bodybuilding champion, Mohamed Makawe of Egypt. The medium class, truly unfair to the other bodybuilders, but nevertheless it happened. Robbie Robinson was being called Mr. Universe well before the contest. Everyone was saying so, that is, except Robinson himself. I'm going to get mine, he said time and time again. I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Nothing will keep me from winning this year. But Robinson always held a respect for the foreign bodybuilders. He never took chances in his training. His training partners would exhort him on, on with threats that the Europeans are coming. And so it came as no surprise when they gave him the medium class title with 188 points. In fact, the champion had trouble trying to force a smile. Who knows how long he had been practicing his victory smile. Mike Menser, the other American, may have been practicing a victory smile of his own. He looked that good. There was no mistaking the trace of disappointment in his eyes when he stood on the second-place podium, a medal dangling about his neck. Menser's 185 points, only three behind Robinson, tells of his condition. But the difference between these two teammates cannot be truly gauged in points. Robinson's achievements and his development have been chronicled so extensively on these pages 
A description of his appearance on stage last November seems almost redundant. Schwarzenegger's mouth literally dropped open at the prejudging after a look at Robinson's back in relaxed position yet. What do you think of Robbie's lats, Arnold asked in mock seriousness. I think he has so much of it he should share some with the other guys. He could have afforded to. Robinson had it all. Weighing 212, the man was so cut up, so impressive, the crowd was hesitant to cheer for fear they might miss something. He added five pounds of muscle to his frame following the advice of his trainer, Joe Weider, and an inch and a half to his calves since the South African competition. His only weakness was his posing. Though greatly improved, Robinson must learn to close up his bicep shots more and open up the back when he's displaying that part. Menser looked good besides Robinson and the pose down between the two. The main thing holding Menser back was his back development and his pale skin, which almost hid his rope-like strands of muscle running every which way and back again for keeps. With 182 points in third place was Turkey's Ahmed Anulu, who was almost quite chagrined about his placing. By all measures, he had done everything to prepare himself for battle, including the smoking of cigarettes. Muscularity being his forte, Anulu made the medium class the tightest of the contest. There were 25 competitors in the class. In fourth spot with 179 points was the balletic Peter Stock of Czechoslovakia. Stock copped the Best Poser Award. Robinson had been very wary of Stock, which had, had heard of his thickness and wasn't sure what to expect. Walter Bubenicek of Austria placed fifth and was awarded the Most Improved Bodybuilder of the Year honors. The Tall Class. So sensational were the short and medium class winners that Roger Walker's triumph of the tall class seemed almost forgetful. The Australian scored 188 points, a good enough score, but in all candor, the man wasn't the equal of Makawe or Robinson. Walker was big, 220 pounds. It was size alone which earned him the title, as other competitors, especially second place Darcy Beckles of Barbados, 177 points, looked more finished. But Walker has been a model of improvement since his first Mr. Universe contest three years ago. In respective Universe contests, he has placed fourth, second, and first in his class. I was a little worried I wouldn't make this show, 27-year-old Walker said. I just got out of the Air Force a while back. While I was in the service, I didn't have the chance to train like I wanted to. So after my discharge, I had a mere three months to train for the show. I wasn't sure who to expect. I knew Waller would be out, but I thought Paul Grant would be competing. Traveling this far bothers me. It tends to knock the weight off me. So I came to Montreal a week early, slightly overweight in anticipation of dropping a few pounds. Beckles, fresh from the Mr. Western Hemisphere, a.k.a. the Mr. World win in New York in October, was in fine detail, his back a virtual gollywog of muscular trabituary. Beckles was, in some people's minds, worthy of a higher score, if not placing. Third place went to Carl Canrath of Austria with 175 points. His promising finish gave Austria second place behind America for the overall team trophy. Barbados, Egypt, Australia, and Turkey followed in that order. Iraq's Abbas Karim registered 167 points for a fourth place showing. Gerald Papowski of Canada scored 166 to claim fifth, only a point ahead of South Africa's Chris Kaiser. The preeminent issue after the contest concerned a face-off between McCauley and Robinson. Who would win? Conjecture seemed to favor neither, and both men expressed disappointment in a move which now seems to put the IFBB smack dab in the middle of a should-have, could-have, and would-have syndrome. I wish we had a chance to compete for the overall title, admitted McCauley. 
Naturally, I'm extremely pleased over my class victory, but true satisfaction would be to name best in the world. Robinson rode the bus back to the hotel after the show in a bit of a blue funk for reasons only known to him. I'm depressed. I've been like this for a few days now. I knew I was going to win. There was no way I wasn't going to win. Sure, I'm satisfied. But, you know, deep down, I really don't like to beat anybody. I wish everybody could be Mr. Universe. I don't like to see anybody get upset because I beat them. But I also ask myself, why did they have to change the overall thing when it was my turn to win? Who knows? But there's no doubt in my mind I would have beat Makawe. The Congress. A time for bureaucratic slum duttery and jiggery pook. The delegate's big day was the Congress presided over by IFPB main man Ben Weider. Stretching on for several hours, those bodybuilders who sat in on the Congress described it as a tedious seminar. But for the delegates, this was the time to express satisfaction over bodybuilding's growth and to emote of one another's accomplishments. Admitted to the IFPB for next year are Algeria, Nigeria, Guatemala, and Denmark. It was also decided that weight categories will become official for next year's competitions. The pose down will now be part of the evening show rather than the prejudging. It was passed that skin coloring lotion will be allowed one day before the contest. Serge Nubray was suspended for life and a one-year ban on Paul Grant of Wales was levied. Anyone in our organization who discriminates against the IFPB will be out like the plague, warned Ben Weeder. It was confirmed that the 1977 Mr. Olympia contest will be produced by Schwarzenegger and Lorimer in Columbus, Ohio, on October 1st. The World Bodybuilding Championships will be staged in Nimes, France, in early November. The 1978 World Finals will be presented in Vancouver, Canada. Stay in touch for more extensive look at the contest and Congress in the next issue. All right. Good article by Jack Neary. Very, very well written, as, of course, Jack Neary always did. I loved his insight into the bodybuilders and his adjectives that he used. Great stuff. Of course, Danny Padilla went on to win the contest the next year. He also won the IFBB Mr. America, the American Bodybuilding Championship. So he did take it more seriously the next year. Robbie, of course, was... This was the last contest Robbie won as an amateur because he had won pretty much everything up to this point. He had won the IFBB American Bodybuilding Championships in 1975, followed by the IFBB Mr. World. And then he went to the Mr. Universe and won his class. And then Ken Waller won the overall. That was in 1975. And then in 76, Robbie won the Mr. International, which was held with the Mr. Olympia that year. That was the first year that Arnold and Jim Lorimer promoted it in Columbus and Franco won the Mr. Olympia. Robbie easily won the Mr. International, and then he won, of course, the Mr. Universe. And it is a shame they didn't have that pose down for the overall, because I think Robbie would have won too. 212, 5'8", man, perfect physique. Great pictures in this magazine too. Padilla was really big. He looks amazing. And Macaulay was just so ripped. One of the best conditions Macaulay ever achieved. And Menser looks fantastic too. So great contest. And I, I always thought Darcy Beckles should have beat Roger Walker too, but Roger Walker was really big. But awesome contest. And then McCauley would go on the next year to win the Mr. International, which was held with the Olympia. And he beat a really good Roy Callender, who was just coming back into competition. And then McCauley went back to the universe the next year, and Danny Padilla beat him. So I got to give McCauley credit for he could have turned pro after winning this contest, but he went back and faced Padilla again. So that was great. And then that was the obviously the controversial Mr. Universe where Cal Scalac beat Mike Menser. 
and that was the one in Nimes, France. And they did not have an overall winner there either. Roy Callender won the middleweight class, and he beat out Darcy Beckles again. So poor Darcy Beckles got second two years in a row, and he really could have won this one. All right, I got a couple more here. I got another training article by Arnold. This comes from the December 79 issue of, now was it Muscle and Fitness yet? Let me see. I think it was still Muscle Builder. Yeah, still Muscle Builder. So it must have been Muscle and Fitness like a year later. But they had a series of articles about Arnold's training. They had his chest workout, his shoulder workout. So this one is his back workout, which I thought was really interesting. I love these articles by Arnold back in the late 70s because, like I said, I'm sure somebody wrote the article for him, but you could tell it's it's definitely him speaking because it's his thoughts. It says, I envision the world's greatest back by Arnold Schwarzenegger, six-time Mr. Olympia. I transcended the level of fact to let my imagination carry me to muscular greatness. If you just work with facts, you kill off the imaginative and conceptual processes. There are people who say there is no proof to religion, so why should they believe in it? They have no hope that anything will change their basic status. If they are poor or if they have a troubled mind, they accept the inevitability of poverty and problems, and because they can't imagine a better lifestyle, peace of mind, or a superior self-image, they are reconciled to life in the pits, or in other words, failure. This is where I think I had an advantage during my competition years. The thing that separated me from many other bodybuilders was my ability to think about my training in another dimension. Mere exercises, sets, and reps, faithful training, and all the good nutrition in the world would never have propelled me beyond the ordinary. No, I had to think above the level of facts. I had to reach deep within myself for a spirit I felt was there, one that would take command of my body and force it to follow my impossible dreams. I envision myself as the greatest bodybuilder in the world. Looking back now, I'm amazed that I never doubted that image. I needed that support to take me through those hard workouts year after year. I could have easily looked at the flaws in my physique and merely trained with a sense of doom like I saw so many others do. I wouldn't let that happen. I remember when I would train my arms, I wouldn't just think of building them to 22 inches. That was too factual. No, when I was burning out those concentration curls, I imagined my arm was filling the room. When I pressed a barbell, I imagined two massive planets on each end of the bar. When I did a lap pull-down, I was trying to pull the sky down on top of me. I had developed a visualization beyond reason. After all, what would life be like without the mystery, wonder, and awe of the world around us? The saying goes, man does not live by bread alone. Neither does the bodybuilder reach the ultimate by sets and repetitions alone. Along with outer mass, I gained an inner strength. There were other greats before me who had done this. People like Larry Scott, who had an underprivileged structure, but saw himself as a superb, unbeatable performer. So strong was his charisma, no one would dare think he had narrow shoulders, least of all Scott. I had taken that page out of the book of champions like Scott and put it under my pillow. It all falls in line with the modern ways of training for various sports, the inner game, the inner scheme. Top athletes today are deeper into the mental picture of their game. When speaking of backs, two bodybuilders immediately come to my mind. Robbie Robinson and Danny Padilla. They both have width, thickness, and definition. you got to admit that they train on a superior level. Otherwise, they would not have such sensational back development. The exercises are the tools. I had no secret exercises, nor do Robbie or Danny. The exercises I do for my back are essentially the same as the ones they do. The main thing here is that you choose a good exercise for each of the four areas of the back. One exercise should take care of the width of the lats. The second exercise should take care of the lower lats. 
The third exercise should hit the upper and central back, and the fourth should work the lower back. Obviously, for lat width, you do either wide grip chin-ups or wide grip pulley pushdowns. For the lower lats, you do chin-ups or pulley pull-downs with a narrow grip. For the upper and middle back, the best exercises are bent-over barbell rowing with a wide grip, which builds the central part of the back, and T-bar rowing, which builds thickness on the outside part of the lats. Both of these exercises will partly take care of the lower back, and then I would include hyperextensions or the good morning exercise. Deadlifts are also good for the lower back. When I was training with Franco, we did deadlifts. It accounted for the striations we had across our lower backs. Once or twice a week, we would deadlift, never more than three sets, adding weight, 400, 500, and 600 pounds. We did them right after the rowing, a few reps with each poundage. It gave our backs a massive look, much like the power lifters and weightlifters get, and we also got a sense of strength. It's important to build basic back strength. I see bodybuilders, Roger Callard is the perfect example, who develop bad backs trying to use heavy weights and bent over rowing. It happens all the time. They should have put in their apprenticeship with regular deadlifts for a few years. I never had a back injury in my life because I always did deadlifts from the very beginning. That's why machine training is precarious. You may strengthen the biceps on a curling machine, but the other body parts are prevented from coordinating with the effort. Then when you go to free weights, you risk the chance of injury. In order for a bodybuilder to develop a phenomenal back, he should first exercise all areas of the back, then finish off his training with a power exercise like the deadlift or the power clean. They make all the back muscles coordinate in a single effort, and that will minimize the chances of injury from any other exercise. Many bodybuilders are notoriously poor at supporting a heavy weight overhead in the standing position. That's because most of the overhead work is done on machines or on a steep inclined benches. They cannot support a free weight overhead without risking injury. They lack coordinated body power. I myself was a weightlifter before I went into bodybuilding, so I knew what it meant to slam heavy weights over my head. My early weightlifting made bodybuilding easier for me. In my upcoming Conan movie, I will likely be in a position to show off my back. I'll need a lot of back and deltoid definition. If I'm struggling with objects or people or wielding a sword, I want my back muscles to bristle with power. I'll get my back ready for that with all the basic back training movements and continue it during the making of the picture. If my back muscles are wreathing and rippling in fight scenes, the public will know that I'm a rugged fighter. I've seen bare torso fight scenes where the guy's back is smooth and fails to ripple when he moves, and I'm never convinced that he's a superior fighter. That aura of power is lacking. It's important for the back to be defined so that with every move you make with your arms, some of the back muscles will visually assist in the action. It's not unlike posing on a platform. The movement of muscle must be emphatic. I want to convey the sense of power and beauty that goes with super muscles in action. I am Conan. I think I have the same fierce determination and fighting spirit as the mythical character. Had I been aware of Conan during my competition years, I probably would have imagined I was him during my workouts. There's a strange, almost mystical turn to becoming Conan. It was as though I'd been primed all my life for the role. I never had to go to the mountain the mountain came to me. When they searched for someone to play Conan, they came directly to me. In a sense, I had willed it, just like I had willed my body. Sooner or later, the man and the myth had to cross paths, and it happened Hollywood style. What I'm saying is that destiny awaits every hopeful bodybuilder. Are you up to the task? Can you project an image that stirs the deep yearning to match it? I did. You have to understand first the meaning of your tools, the exercises. For example, when you do chin-ups or pulley pull-downs with a wide grip, 
Keep the back arched. It forces the back muscles to peak contract. When you do wide grip bent over rowing, pull the bar all the way to the chest and hold it for a count, raising the elbows as high as possible. It forces all the muscles along the center line of your upper back to peak contract. When you do close grip chins, use a reverse grip. This puts the maximum stretch on your lats, which has an effect on them all the way down into your lower back. When you do deadlifts, think power. When Franco and I trained, we always made sure to use a weight which was heavy enough so we were forced to concentrate. The rest is up to you. If you want to be the world's greatest bodybuilder, don't ever doubt it. All right. <laughs> that was an awesome article by Arnold. I love that it was 79. So they were planning on doing the movie Conan and that got delayed a couple years because I think he had signed the contract to do it in 77. So it was a long time and they finally did it and it took forever to do it. So the movie, of course, was not released until 1982 and Arnold was getting ready for the movie when he decided to compete. And that's when he did the 1980 Mr. Olympia, of course. So that was the controversial one. All right. I've got another contest article. This was when Chris Dickerson entered the IPV. Chris never competed in the IFPV his whole bodybuilding career. He, of course, won the Mr. America title in 1970 with the AAU, the first African-American to win that title. And then he did win the NAVA Mr. Universe on two occasions. In 1973, he won the amateur. In 1974, he won the pro. And then he was competing over in the WBBG with Dan Laurie. And then somebody finally said, you know, you should go over to the IFBB now. Arnold doing it with Jim Lorimer. So his first Mr. Olympia contest was in 1979 when he was approaching his, I think he was 40 years old that year. So his first big win was right after that Mr. Olympia. He took sixth place in his first Mr. Olympia. He looked great. I was at the contest, very thick, but could have been a little bit harder. So he stayed on his diet, and then he did the Canada Cup just a couple weeks later. So this article is about the Canada Cup, 1979, and it is also written by Jack Neary. It says, late in November, as winter descended or threatened to descend on Hamilton, Ontario, Canada's steel city, 40-year-old Chris Dickerson did what his Canada Cup opponents were obviously not prepared to do, win. Dickerson came to Hamilton in the sharpest condition of his career. Being ripped was the measure of insurance he needed over his 17 opponents, none of whom were at their all-time best. Dickerson dealt a bodybuilding tradition, a sock to the stomach, with his condition and victory at Hamilton. Normally, late November is a training low point for bodybuilders, but the aspiring opera singer trained savagely for this contest. It was, he said, worth it. The Southern California resident left the Can Canadian cold $6,000 richer. I am definitely in the best shape of my life, but I knew it would take that to win, Dickerson said backstage at the swank sold-out Hamilton Place moments after his narrow victory over formidable Mike Menser. I don't think I could beat the big guys unless I was in absolutely top shape. I expected a battle from Menser and got it. He has the size, symmetry, everything. What a way for me to end 1979. Dickerson, weighing 183 pounds, was clearly the most muscularly defined man on stage, yet he was tense and uncertain of victory, he admitted later in the interview. His concern had peaked moments before the third round when a bumbling audio technician lost his tape music, a crucial part of Dickerson's free posing routine. Dickerson was livid and threatened to withdraw from the competition until Dennis Tenorino talked him out of it. You're crazy if you pull out, were Tinorino's words to Dickerson. You're in the money already. You've got a chance to win this whole thing. Don't blow it now. 
Dickerson went out to thunderous applause and posed spectacularly to the unfamiliar music. I was tense right up to the end, he said. They lost my music, and I'm one bodybuilder who was really dependent on his music. I had my routine perfectly synchronized with the music, and suddenly when I was told they lost it, well, I knew that would hurt me. I just went out and did my best. It was Dickerson's first win since he captured the NABA Pro Mr. Universe title in 1974. He ended his five-year hiatus from competition in August when he placed second to Roy Callender at the Diamond Cup in Vancouver, see Muscle Builder April issue. Five weeks later at the season's greatest event, the Olympia Dickerson placed sixth overall. His victory at the Canada Cup gave him more than $12,000 in winnings for his first IFPB season. Next year should be an even better year for me, he predicted. There's been concern among bodybuilding's cognoscente that the Canada Cup would be anticlimactic because it was scheduled late in the season and after the Olympia. It proved to be an unfounded concern. Although many of the competitors had failed to maintain their peak condition, evidence of a grueling pro season, competition at Hamilton was fierce, and the 2,500 fans who packed the auditorium were clamorous in their approval. Picking a winner was a difficult task for the judges, according to head judge Bill Pearl. Indeed, the two rounds of prejudging seemed to last longer than usual. Judges Leo Stern, Sid Paculo, Winston Roberts, and Tom Pazoko under Pearl's guidance, called various combinations of athletes back for comparisons. Later, Pearl said of the panel's decision, the top two men were very close. Our choice came down to the man who we felt was in the best condition. Menser was not far off his best form, which he had displayed at the Olympia. By finishing second, his third such placing of the season. Geez, I'm getting sick of seconds. Menser took home $3,500. His winnings for the year totaled more than $20,000, in addition to finished second three times, Menser won one contest in 79 and placed third in the other. I didn't expect Dickerson to be a contender before the contest, Menser said. The guys I was concerned about were Robbie and Casey Viator. But in the lineup, I looked over at Dickerson and could see he was ripped. Speaking of his own presentation, Menser said, I thought my posing was the best I've done. One of the first men to pose, Menser was more fortunate than Dickerson and that his tape music didn't get lost. It was Mike's most inspiring selection to date. Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man, recognizable as the theme of CBS's Sports Spectacular. Robbie Robinson's third place earned him $2,500. Canada is clearly Robinson country. The Black Prince drew deafening response from the zealous fans, but there was no denying he was off his best form. Robinson was awesome when he posed, yet smooth. There was talk among insiders that he didn't prepare himself with victory in mind. But third place left Robinson as the top man for consistency in 79. He copped three victories, a second and a third and a fourth for the year. Fourth place and $1,250 went to Boyer Co. After a mediocre prejudging, Co. came alive in the evening, presenting a routine which brought your reporter to this conclusion. Co. has more poses that are distinctly his own than any other bodybuilder. Co. had lost his Olympia edge, but there's little wonder why. He entered seven out of eight contests this season, and he improved each time out, finally achieving his best shape of his career at the Olympia. After the prejudging, muscle builder Bill Reynolds reported that Coe expected to place as low as fifth, maybe even sixth, but Coe seemed more disappointed than surprised with fourth. Waiting for the bus that was to take the competitors from the hotel to the theater for the prejudging, Coe lamented with Tinarino over the season's grind. Not only were both men eager to rest, but they looked forward to dropping tuna fish from their diets, at least until next year's contest preparations. 
I'm so sick of eating fish, Cole groaned. I just can't stand the smell of it now. You and me both, Tenorino said. I gave up tuna. God, the smell from the tin just makes me nauseous, Cole said. Later that night at the post-contest party, fifth-place winner Casey Viator came up to Coe in the lounge of the Sport and Fitness Academy. Viator asked, Well, Bubba, what do you have to say about the results? Casey, if there's one thing I can tell you, it's that I never worry about the results in these contests, Coe said. Once they're over, that's it. I put it out of my mind. It was Viator's first IFPB competition. Originally, he had been concerned about the fairness of IFPB judging. Four days before the event, he telephoned Menser from Florida, hoping for some reassurance that the IFBB contests are not rigged. Casey Menser said, Joe Weider has got nothing to do with these contests. All he does is cover them in his magazine. He doesn't even go to half of them. Bill Pearl picks the judges and they make their decision. It doesn't matter who wins to Joe Weider because he can feature any of the guys in his magazine anyway. That was all the assurance Viator needed. The one-time teenage phenomenon came to Canada in good shape. His fabled muscle thickness was not disappointing. What hurt his chances of placing higher was his amateurish posing. In the IFBB, good posing is vital to contest success. Fifth place brought $750 to the Florida resident. Later in the month, Viator left his position at Arthur Jones Nautilus Organization in Deland, Florida, and he moved to Los Angeles. When Bill Reynolds spotted Viator drinking a Coca-Cola after the prejudging and asked if that beverage is on Arthur Jones' approved list, Viator replied, no, that's why I'm moving to California. According to the judges, sixth place was as difficult to pick as first. Tenorino got the nod over England's Tony Emmett, who was preparing for a permanent move to California. Tenorino left with $500 and only traces of bitterness over the decision. Tenorino's temper tantrums of the late 70s are legend in bodybuilding circles, but apparently he's found religion. The most noticeable effect is that he has mellowed considerably. Other competitors in the contest were Samir Benute, Ed Corney, Bill Grant, Kent Keene, Harold Poole, Henry Cocker, Steve Davis, Ed Giuliani, and Steve Reed. It was the first pro contest for Benute, the recently crowned Mr. Universe. He had the best proportioned physique on the stage, but would have needed more definition to make the top six. The can in the cup marked the return to competition of the great Harold Poole, who had been inactive for several years. Poole, who was credited with inventing the most muscular pose, was in good shape, although he appeared a little flat compared to his best days. When he walked on stage, a cry from the audience rang out, Where's Larry Scott? Few fans can forget Poole's titanic battles with that man. I enjoyed coming back, Poole said. I was somewhat unfamiliar with the new judging rules and rounds. They didn't have those in my day. I'm not sure what my plans are for next year. Contest promoter Bill Jovich deserves a tip of the hat. He sold out the theater and gave the pros a good event, although the contest did suffer some from some follow-ups. The worst of these were audio problems. This reporter thought Govich could have run the event better from backstage rather than as a master of ceremonies. Govich and his brother Ned own and operate the impressive 24,000-square-foot Sport and Fitness Academy in Hamilton. The academy has extensive weight training equipment, including Nautilus, for men and women, plus racquetball courts, whirlpools, steam, and saunas. An hour before the prejudging, Mike Menser was out treading Hamilton streets in search of a liquor store. Menser wanted a glass or two of wine before the contest. It helps the muscle pump, he said, and it brings out the veins. When audio problems delayed the contest, one fan yelled, What do you use, Radio Shack? When Roy Callender was asked during the prejudging to extend his leg, meaning to display his calf in a back pose, 
The affable Montreal resident thrust his massive thigh forward, i.e. away from the judges, as a joke. The judges laughed, and prejudging announcer Chester McLean said, It's your funeral. Overheard from the judges' table, the competitors were all so close that I started looking for flaws. When I found them, that was it. That's the way to do it. Flaws. Everyone's got strong points. Guest posers were Mr. Canada Mike Watson, new women's bodybuilding sensation Patsy Chapman, and the Davises, Steve and Ellen, winners of the four weight classes in the Mr. Central Canada contest held in conjunction with the Canada Cup, were lightweight Frank Greco, middleweight Dan Kennedy, light heavyweight Dan Rogers, and heavyweight Winston Brown. All right, that was interesting. I remember that concept. I forgot that uh, Chris did uh, Diamond Cup, where Roy Callender won, and Chris was second. I thought his first contest coming back was the Mr. Olympia, but he did do that one. But, yeah, good stuff. Great hearing those old names many of who have passed on, Mike Menser, Dennis Tenorino, Chris Dickerson, of course. So sad, Bill Pearl. But those were the those were the good old days, that's for sure. What a lineup. And Samir's first show, I forgot about that, because he had just won the universe. And then he did his first Olympia the next year where he was really, really smooth. I think he took 15th out of 16. All right. Speaking of Mr. Universe, uh, I got one more article for you guys. This one comes from the... July 1980 issue of now it's muscle and fitness. So now they had, they must have switched over in 1980. Now it is muscle and fitness. So Tom Platt won the Mr. Universe in 1979. So this was one year later. Chris Dickerson is on the cover, by the way, one of the few covers that Chris did for muscle and fitness. And it says, who says dreams don't come true by Ahmed Tanny with Tom Platt's. The thought of leaving one's origins, breaking family ties, and coming to the West Coast to train goes through the minds of many Eastern and Midwestern bodybuilders. The dream of becoming a great bodybuilder as fast as possible has become epidemic. Youngsters with stars in their eyes pour into California convinced they will become the updated version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. The desire is valid, the purpose sound, the geographic direction correct, but the essence of what it really takes to become a bodybuilding champion somehow escapes them. It takes more than dreams and goes deeper than mere desire. Tom Platts is an example. Tom was a stringy kid in Pittsburgh when the bodybuilding dream overtook him. In only a few years, he succeeded in making his dream come true. He won Mr. Universe in 1978 and has since pursued a lucrative career as a pro. Becoming a top bodybuilder was more than desire, Tom says now in retrospect. For me, it was an intrinsic need, as basic as eating and sleeping, something I had to do. It was a need that had to be fulfilled. It was obsessive. There was a willingness to die to achieve it. Tom doesn't recommend that everyone feel the way that way, but this was an extent of the drive he experienced. What he had to do, he says, was sit down and think about himself in realistic terms. Where was he then? How far he wanted to go as a bodybuilder and how much work he was willing to invest. Back to the beginning. Tom was 12 when his father bought him his first set of weights. It captivated Tom to see his father lift the jangling loaded barbell over his head. After the evening meal, they would go to the basement, read the training manual, and lift the weights. His younger brother and sister would count the reps aloud. One, two, three. His father explained the breathing instructions. Tom vividly remembers trying to do bench presses without a bench, lying on the floor, elbows hitting the cement. The seed was sown, and for the next few years, training was sporadic. When Tom was 15, his dream emerged full-blown. He declared his intention to win the Mr. America title someday. 
The only diagnosis at the time would have been terminal optimism. Actually, he began to work more seriously with the weights as part of his high school football training program. In fact, his football coaches frowned on bodybuilding training, encouraging powerlifting training instead. To them, bodybuilding was insepid. What did mirrors and muscles in a good-looking body have to do with playing football? A junior by then, Tom weighed 140, and the muscle growth excited him. Still too small to be a lineman, he became a linebacker and constantly took a pounding from the much bigger players. During the offseason, the coaches happily approved of Tom's fanatic weight training efforts to build size and strength. Little did they know he had a sight set on the Mr. America title, not football. He began reading Muscle Builder magazine and recalls seeing an unbelievable picture of Franco Colombo doing curls. At first, he thought he could never look like that. It was impossible. But as he developed, he began to identify with champion bodybuilders. And he himself was identified. The students in his high school would say, hey, there goes Platts. Look at that. He lifts weights. Tom liked that. Today, Tom will say he no longer pumps iron for identity. It's more the waging of a personal battle within himself. He talks about this in his seminars when explaining why he doesn't train with a partner. I am competing with someone inside me, he says. It's very hard to beat yourself. A partner offers enthusiasm, but I need the competition of myself. After going to high school in Pittsburgh and Kansas City, Tom wound up in Detroit, eventually getting his degree in physical education at Wayne State. In 1973, he won a powerlifting trophy in the 148-pound class. It was an overwhelming achievement for him, one which proved that he could star what he loved to do the most, train with weights. He began entering Michigan bodybuilding contests and collected the titles of Mr. Ironman, Mr. Adonis, Mr. Detroit, and in 1975, the coveted Mr. Michigan title. His hero at that time was Pat Rule, who had been Mr. Michigan the year before and had inspired Tom to turn entirely to bodybuilding. Today, both of them train in Santa Monica. In winning the Mr. Michigan title, Tom was persuaded by guest poser Chris Dickerson to enter the Junior Mr. America. He weighed 185 pounds. Six months before, he had won the Michigan State powerlifting title in the 220-pound class. He made a record-breaking deadlift of 650 and did a 585 squat. Tom obviously had the potential to become one of the world's best powerlifters. Admittedly overweight when powerlifting, he had a drop of about 35 pounds to get in shape for the Mr. Michigan contest. In the subsequent Junior Mr. America event, he placed second. In 1976, he entered the Mr. America weighing 210 pounds, hard but uncut. He was beaten out for best legs because he was too bulky. In 1977, he determined to get supremely cut up for the Mr. America contest, and he entered weighing 160 pounds, 50 less than the year before. But the severely restricted chicken and grapefruit diet he had lived on for months had strung out his upper body, and he placed seventh. Only one place better than the year before. He felt he had over-dieted and over-trained. After receiving his physical education degree in 1978, he made the decision to go to the West Coast and train with the Weeder Superstars for the next Mr. America. He told himself if he didn't win, he would quit competition. Free of school, able to give training his best shot, he was determined to correct the excesses of the previous two years, and everything worked perfectly this time, except Tony Pearson won the title. That same evening, the 1978 IFBB Mr. Universe qualification pose down was held, and Tom won a berth on the U.S. team in the 200-pound class. There he was, a loser at the Mr. America, ready to pack it in, and suddenly he was being sent to the Mr. Universe contest. What a crazy turn of events. At the time, I sat down and talked with myself. I'm always talking with myself, he says, laughing. Okay, six weeks to go to Acapulco and the Mr. Universe. 
I had borrowed money to train for the Mr. America and I was in debt. I had never met Joe Weider before and now he was giving me money for articles. He was also advising me in my training and posing. He took pictures of me. I was on a super high. I felt sure I was going to win. And I did win. There I was, Mr. Universe, and I wasn't even Mr. America. Things happened so fast. I was one step ahead of myself. I was walking into walls in disbelief, but I had trained for it 24 hours a day. My friends and I had put up signs all over my apartment reading, Tom Platt's Mr. Universe. People would have thought I was crazy, but it worked. For the first time in my life, I was sure of myself. Upon his return to Santa Monica after his victory, he faced that frustrating post-contest interlude when the publicity has not as yet gotten around the world and no offers are coming in. He went to work as a, at a longevity center in Santa Monica. Then, all at once, exhibition requests started coming, thanks to Muscle Builder magazine, he says. During 1979, Tom gave 25 exhibitions and seminars. I love being so busy I can't stand it, he says. I love talking to people at seminars and projecting this enthusiasm and having them walk away with some of it. It has a mirror effect. The enthusiasm you project bounces off people and comes back to you to increase your own. It helps you as well as your audience. I'm turning people on to my religion. I'm a bodybuilding priest in a sense. Success is sweet. Tom has bought himself the Corvette he always wanted. As a professional bodybuilder, he admires and emulates the attitudes of superstars Zane and Menser. He still finds it hard to believe. In a matter of two years, I've gone from Mr. Michigan to the level of Mr. Olympia competitor. Here I am against world-famous champions like Zane. I used to know only from the magazines. Nobody wins the Olympia the first time. I reviewed all my 1976 and 1977 Mr. America and Mr. Universe training notes, and I applied the successes to my Olympia training. I did my best last year at my first Olympia. He was eighth in the 200-pound class. Hopefully, I'll enter this year's Olympia in Australia. Most competitors think they could never be Olympia caliber after their youthful dream has vanished. You've got to say, yes, I can be. If I had said no, I would never be world caliber. It would never would have happened to me. You have to feel that it can. It will. It does. You must believe in yourself. You must realize that dreams do come true. All right. So we got a couple of positive attitude uh, articles from Arnold and from Tom Platts. That was really interesting, uh, reading about Platts in the beginning of his career. Of course, he placed second to Ron Tufel at the Mr. America. They didn't mention that in the article, but he was actually second in his class. And then, of course, they had the pose down for the Mr. Universe team, and they used different judges, and he beat Tony Pearson. And Tony had just won the overall Mr. America. He beat Ron Tufel, who beat Platts at the short class. So, yeah, that was weird. But it was just a different set of judges. And like they said, the weight classes, then the middleweight, which today the middleweight is only up to 176, but the middleweight back then, because they only had three classes, went up to 198. Tom was weighing, I think, I can't remember what he weighed in that contest, but I think he was close to 200, which is amazing when he was 160 the year before in 1977. I remember everybody was shocked at how great Tom looked in uh, 1978. He was so big, kind of like a preview of what was going to happen in his pro career. And then, of course, the Mr. Olympia in 1981 two years after this article was done was the peak of Tom's career when he took third place to Franco and Chris Dickerson at the Mr. Olympia. And I think Tom was living with a bunch of people when he first moved to California. They didn't go into that, that in detail either, but I remember reading that in another magazine where Tom was living with like six different people. He was like sleeping on the couch 
just to get his dream started. So Tom Platt's amazing guy. I mean, people still love Tom all these years later. He's still super popular. He's still one of, I think, the favorite bodybuilders of everybody. All right, guys, that's it. I hope you guys enjoyed these articles. I wanted to come out with something this week. I want to thank my Patreon donors for continuing to support the show. I Every week I give the Patreon donors a Bodybuilding Legends newsletter just to give them something back to the show. And I also will give them audio articles like the ones you just heard. And also video articles. I include an article along with the pictures that were in that magazine. So if you guys are interested in becoming a Patreon donor, just go to bodybuildinglegendshow.com, which is our official website. You'll see the link in the upper right-hand corner. I've also got the link right below in the description of this podcast. All right, that's it. And uh, hopefully next week we can finally get Diana Dennis on the show. We've been trying to get her on for a couple of weeks. So hopefully we can manage that interview this week. And she will be on the show hopefully next week. All right, guys, keep your fingers crossed for that. Until then, keep training hard, stay safe out there, and we'll see you guys next week. Take care.